right, so we are continuing our series through some selected psalms. The title of the series is How Blessed, and we're looking at six different psalms that have that language in them. How blessed is the man? How blessed is the one? How blessed are they? God doesn't hide the path of blessing from us. He actually delights to reveal it to us and make it clear. So we're going to look at Psalm 40. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you can go ahead and turn there now. And we'll dive into the text in just a minute. It's on page 468 if you're using the Pew Bible. Uh, But before we do, I want you to just think with me about something here. So I'm guessing that even if you're pretty young and certainly if you're very old or if you're anywhere in between, you probably notice that there's oftentimes a difference between God's timetable and ours, okay? That we're not often on the same page with God. And so that's probably not a surprise to any of you. And it would make sense, right? Psalm 90, verse four says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Or in 2 Peter 3, 8, He writes, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So it makes sense that sometimes we struggle our our timetable relative to God's timetable. A couple other examples. 1 Peter 5. He writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then he writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What do you think he's referring to when he says a little while? The entirety of our life. That establishment, that restoration, confirmation, strengthening, that's, that's coming at the end. I mean, we can have foretastes of it in this life. But the little while there is not just, I mean, sometimes our suffering is temporary and then we have relief and that's wonderful and we can thank God for it. But ultimately, the little while is the suffering of this life. And it doesn't feel like a little while, especially if you know chronic pain or if you know deep suffering. One other example of how oftentimes our timetable and God's, you know, we struggle to align them in our experience. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Does your affliction always feel light and momentary? I mean, have you read 2 Corinthians 11? Gone a little further in this book by Paul and read the litany, the, the list of his sufferings? He didn't live some charmed life and then write this, and you're like, well, yeah, easy for you to say, Paul. He suffered deeply, intensely, in prolonged ways. And he calls this light, momentary affliction? Well, 
in comparison with the eternal weight of glory. Yes, our life is like a vapor. Even if we suffer deeply for 80 or 90 years, it's a blip on the screen compared with eternity. So anyway, point made, the fact that our timetable and God's are often out of sync, that's obvious, right? What's also obvious, if we just give it a minute of thought, is that this timetable difference creates some very real challenges for us in our regular life. It means that we are often going to have to wait. And most of us are not so good at that. How many of you like to wait? If you're sitting in the front, nobody put their hand up in the back. Okay, just saying. So most of us are pretty impatient. Everything in us wants what we want now. And our world, the world in which we live, certainly caters to that and fans those flames. So Amazon Prime. Oh, man. You mean I got to wait like a week for this? If you have to order from someplace else? Microwave ovens, fast food restaurants, instant information online, instant global communication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the trouble with patience is not a new thing. It's not just our generation, not just our technological age that has these issues. God's people have always struggled to wait on him, which is actually encouraging, right? that we're not the first ones to struggle here. Waiting on the Lord is such a vital posture. It's such a, an absolutely essential discipline to learn. And God's people through the ages, certainly his cloud of witnesses in the word, and even in church history, they have so much to teach us. And David in Psalm 40 is gonna teach us this morning. So, there's six points on the outline. Um, if you want to run out and grab an outline and you didn't get one, feel free to. I won't be bothered, but the, the points will be up on the screen as well. So point number one, I waited, he delivered, verses one to three. Okay, so Psalm 40, to the choir master, this thing is meant to be sung, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for all, whenever it says all four capital letters, Lord, referring to Yahweh. I'm going to read Yahweh, okay, just so you're not thrown off. Um, if you want an explanation of that, listen to last week's message if you weren't here. Okay, so I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So we need to hit a little bit of context. So the Psalter is arranged on purpose. It's not just random pearls on a string. There is some thought given, Holy Spirit-inspired thought given to how the Psalter is put together, okay? So actually flip back to Psalm 37. I want you to just see what Psalm 40 is in the context of some recent psalms. So Psalm 37, and I'm just going to hit a few verses in Psalm 37, 38, 39, and then that'll make sense of how Psalm 34 begins, all right? 
So Psalm 37, 1, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Do you hear it? Wait. Wait for it. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. This is kind of patience and waiting worked out. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust him. Wait for him. He will make good on that promise. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Be still and wait patiently. Verse 7, be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires or devices. Sorry. Verse 9, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And then skip down to verse 28. For Yahweh loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Wait for it. Justice is coming. Verse 34, wait for Yahweh and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Do you hear it over and over again? Wait on the Lord. Trust in him. Hang in there. Justice is coming. Don't give up. Now look at Psalm 38, verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Now skip down to verse 15. But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And then down to verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. Do you hear? He's waiting. I'm in trouble. Help me. I'm looking to you. I'm hoping in you. I'm waiting for you. Make haste to help. And then, verse, and then uh, Psalm 39, verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Do something. I'm waiting for you. Help. So there's painful waiting in Psalm 37, Psalm 38, Psalm 39. And all of that painful waiting is now answered when you get to Psalm 40. I waited patiently for Yahweh. And he heard my cry and delivered me. That's what's going on in the context here. So back to Psalm 40. I waited patiently for Yahweh. In, in Hebrew, the language is actually pretty strong here. You know, they didn't have Microsoft Word in the ancient Near East, and so they couldn't do boldface or under, underlined. So oftentimes, emphasis was created by repetition, by a doubling. Okay? So literally, it says something like, I waited, waited, Okay, so the ESV, this is a reasonable translation. I waited patiently is a way to translate that. 
Um, the question is, what's the nature of the intensity? I'm waiting intensely. I'm waiting patiently, or is it I'm waiting intently, like with focus? Do you see? So it's a little unclear as to which it is. A lot of translations go with patiently, but it's quite likely that it could be I waited intently, like with single-hearted focus, like I'm banking everything on you. You got to come through. So I waited and waited. I waited intently, and he inclined to me. He turned to me. He stooped down, bent down to deliver, heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. So you can imagine falling into a pit. You can imagine if you fell into a, like, a, like a cistern or a well. Actually, Jeremiah was thrown into one of these, if you remember in chapter 38. Um, and the mud on the bottom, your, your legs sink in and you're literally stuck. You can't even lift your legs and there's no rope. And then imagine if you start hearing water, like a lot of water rushing toward you, like it's going to fill up the well. Can you imagine the feeling of desperation and helplessness if that was about to happen? That's the picture here. Kind of reminds me of the Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. So if not, I encourage you to read it. John Bunyan. He wrote it when he was in prison for his faith a couple hundred years ago. And when he's in the city of destruction and he's aware of his sin and he's burdened down and he's, he just needs relief from the guilt of his sin and he's crying out for it and evangelist points the way and he starts to head toward that yonder narrow gate, right? And he sticks his fingers in his ears because people in the town are like, you're crazy, where are you going? And he says, life, life, eternal life. Like, nobody's going to stop me from finding, you know, freedom from this burden and eternal life. <clears throat> couple, couple guys come from the city of destruction, chase after him to, to kind of track him down and bring him back, obstinate and pliable. <clears throat> and when they reach him, they try to talk him out of going forward. And obstinate finally just throws up his hands. Pliable, he's pliable. He hears of the benefits of going to the celestial city. You know, there's language like this. He, he quotes 1 Peter 1. I'm looking for an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfaded and kept in heaven. It's kept safe there to be given at the appointed time to those who diligently seek it. You can read about it in my book. And Pliable says, oh, okay, I'll go with you. So they end up falling into a swamp, the slough of despond, or the swamp of despond, okay? And so here's how it goes once they get there. Now, now I saw in my dream, just as they had finished talking, that they came near to a very miry swamp that was in the middle of the valley. Then suddenly both Christian and Pliable, who were not paying attention to where they were walking, fell into the swamp. The name of the swamp was Despond. They wallowed there until they were both completely covered with mud. Christian, weighed down by the burden on his back, began to sink. Then Pliable said, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Honestly, said Christian, I don't know. 
Christian's answer offended Pliable, who angrily said to Christian, is this the happiness you've been telling me about all the time we've been together? If we have this much difficulty at the beginning of our journey, what may we expect between now and the end of our journey? If I get out of this swamp alive, you can have the brave country that you're so fond of talking about without me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on the side of the swamp that was nearest to the city of destruction. So away he went, and Christian never saw him again. Help shows up. His name is Help. Everybody's got a name that's pretty apt um, in this book. Christian, you know, if you haven't read it. And he's helped out of the swamp, and he continues on his way. So Christian, even though the Lord sent that help, over and over again, Christian waits on the Lord, and the Lord delivers. Pliable said, ah, I didn't sign up for this, and he bails. Okay, so you can see when the chips are down our, the reality or, you know, fakeness of our faith gets proven out. Okay, so it's a picture of this miry bog that we are delivered out of by God's grace. So can you resonate with that language in Psalm 40, verse 2? He drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, Certainly that's where we are before Christ. In our sins, we are just dead in the water. And we need delivered. And only Jesus can save us. But also, even for believers, and certainly David is a believer here, have you ever been at a breaking point? Have you ever felt like you can't take it any longer? Like you're going to crack? Have you ever been so troubled that you feel like, almost like your soul is suffocating, like it's hard to breathe, and maybe physically that's the case, but also just spiritually you're suffocating? What do you do? You've got to wait on the Lord. Now, is that just passive? You can't do anything? You just have to sit on your hands? No. We'll learn more of what waiting on the Lord is as we walk through this psalm. But look what happens when the Lord delivers. So if you have been at one of those breaking points or, or you know, just been at your wit's end and then the Lord delivers you, if you experience his deliver, deliverance in the midst of that desperation, you know how sweet it is, you know, after you've been stuck in the mud, desperate, helpless, to have your feet set upon a rock and have your steps made secure. The end of verse two there. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. New songs go along with new deliverances, just like Brian mentioned earlier. When we get delivered, we praise God. Thank you. <laughs> and the more desperate the more passionate the praise and the thanks, right? So he put a new song in my mouth, a, a song of praise to our God. And again, that could be an old song that we sing again or it could be a new song that, you know, somebody writes a new song because of God's new mercies, right? Amazing Grace, written hundreds of years ago, but that was a new song. It's an old song to us, right? But it was testimony to God's deliverance of a wicked slave trader, 
He was a wretch. I mean, we're all wretches in our sin, right? But amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Miry bog to firm granite underneath your feet. And when John Newton was delivered, he wrote Amazing Grace. That's Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God put a new song in his mouth, the song of praise to his God, to our God. And this psalm is the same thing. This psalm is David's song representing the new song that God put in his mouth. And it's so helpful to have the old songs and the new songs because they become like a, like a testimony to God's faithfulness in the past. Isn't it easy to forget God's past faithfulnesses, his past track record of goodness and deliverance? It's really easy to get into like a what have you done for me lately sort of posture with God. It's easy to feel forgotten or abandoned and these songs of deliverance are present expressions of gratitude and praise for deliverance and it becomes an enduring witness to God's past faithfulness. It's a reminder of his past faithfulness and that's for you and it's also for others because when we sing these songs, when we proclaim God's faithfulness to deliver us, certainly it gives expression to our gratefulness and our praise, but also it ends up blessing other people. So your deliverance when you were in desperate circumstances and God took you out of the miry bog and put your feet on the rock, your deliverance is not just for you. Point number two. So David says he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And then he writes, many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So when you are delivered and you praise God and give him thanks, it impacts your family, it impacts your friends, it impacts your neighbors because you can't shut up about what God has done for you. Like, like the apostles in the early chapters of Acts, we can't keep silent because of what we've seen and heard. What God has done for us in Christ, we have to proclaim it. So what happens is fellow Christians are encouraged. And again, this can be the big D deliverance of ultimate salvation from our sin. It's also the little D deliverances, right? Every time he rescues us from temptation, from sin, from affliction and trouble and trial and all of that, we bless his name and other people are encouraged. Family, friends, again, believers are encouraged. Oh, God's good. He's faithful. So encouraging to see how he worked in your life. And also, it can be a witness to those outside because they feel their guilt and their shame and they know their need for forgiveness as God turns the light on and your proclamation of God's deliverance in your life could be what leads them to find the same kind of deliverance. So, blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. Blessed is the man who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who, you know, think they don't need God, boast of their capability and their strength. Blessed is the man who does not run to worldly strength or to false refuges. 
no matter how impressive or strong they may seem. Like, where do you go when the chips are down? David is saying, blessed is the man who runs to the Lord. So an example, King Asa. You can read it later in 2 Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 14 to 16, okay? Um, we'll just look at a couple passages here. So he was a good king, by and large. He made lots of righteous reforms. Early in his reign in chapter 14, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against Judah, southern kingdom, with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Chariots were the ancient Near Eastern tanks, Okay? and came as far as Marisha. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephatha at Marisha. And Asa cried to Yahweh his God, Oh, Yahweh, there's none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Yahweh, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Yahweh, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So he waited on the Lord. The Lord delivered them. But later on in life, when the king of Israel, northern kingdom, came against Judah, Asa actually ran to Syria and paid them, you know, gave them tribute and said, hey, would you come help defend us? Well, guess what happened? It actually worked. It worked. Because when Syria came, then the northern kingdom had to retreat and cover that, you know, defense. But it was a failure of faith. Okay, so his plan worked, but he ran not to the Lord. He ran to the strong. So listen to what happens, what's said of Asa at the end of his life. This is a cautionary tale given our theme this morning. 2 Chronicles 16, 7. At that time, Hanani the seer, a prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on Yahweh your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army? That's that million early on in his reign. With very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on Yahweh, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of Yahweh run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was broken and he humbled himself and now he got angry. He got angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. So he waited on the Lord, trusted in the Lord early on and then later on, he ran elsewhere. Do you see how we need the grace, the truth of Psalm 40? Because we're going to continue to need to wait on the Lord. So cautionary tale here, Second Corinthians, or I said it again, Second Chronicles 16.11, it's sad that this was the end of his life. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe and he didn't run to the Lord. Even in his disease, he did not seek Yahweh but sought help from physicians. Again, it doesn't mean if you go to the doctor, you're not trusting in the Lord. The point is, 
he trusted in them instead of running to the Lord. So Psalm 40 is like, don't do that. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. Verse five, you have multiplied, oh Yahweh my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. When you're waiting, you can feel like you're alone, like you're abandoned. No, 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 no. His works on behalf of his people, history is filled with his faithfulness. You've multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts, you've multiplied. You're always thinking of us. None can compare with you. There is no one like you. You are holy, holy, holy in a class by yourself. I will proclaim and tell of your wondrous deeds and your thoughts, yet they are more than can be told. So after this kind of deliverance, Psalm 37, 38, 39, just painful waiting, Psalm 40, 1 to 3, sweet deliverance, what's the proper response? to that kind of deliverance. Well, certainly he sings praise, but as we look at verse six and following, we see that God wants our hearts and that he's given us his heart. Okay, so sacrifice in the Old Testament would be the usual ritual response to deliverance. You would offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and in that way you would thank God and praise him for what he'd done. So it's kind of curious what happens in verse six here. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, Yahweh. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great con congregation. So this is the king, David, writing about God's deliverance in his life and couple of comments from some commentators that are helpful here so that we can try to summarize this section. So Alec Motier writes this, David means that in this case, divine deliverance is so wonderful that mere offering could not match what Yahweh would wish. Nothing but total self-dedication could suffice. Okay, so do you see what he says there? You haven't desired sacrifice and offering. Behold, I have come. I desire to do your will. Your law is in my heart. It's captured me. I want to please you. I want to do whatever you say. <laughs> I'm yours. So besides bringing the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the psalmist brings himself and his earnest desire to do what pleases God. Second quote here, a guy named Ju James Luther Mays, he writes this. This is not the self-righteous claim of a confident legalist, it is an offering of praise for salvation. And what is even more important, it, it is the confession of a transformation of the self wrought by salvation. 
Where human desire and will are conformed to divine pleasure and instruction, the purpose of praise through sacrifice and song has been incorporated into the very processes of the self. The true thanksgiving for salvation is witness and will. What does that mean? (laughs) Because God has delivered him and he is so grateful and thankful, his will belongs to God alone. And he is happy. He's not going to be silent about this deliverance. He's happy to be a faithful witness in the congregation. I'm not going to keep it to myself. I'm going to make it known. So, again, the king in the ancient Near East was supposed to be like the representative of the people of God. And God had delivered the king. In a sense, all the people benefit but the kings repeatedly failed. I mean, certainly King David, you know, for all of his victories, and he's a man after God's own heart, he fell woefully short, right? So a new covenant was needed. And so actually this section is quoted in the book of Hebrews. How is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, how's that going to be set up? How's it going to be established, accomplished? Because ultimately, sacrifices can't deal with our sin. The blood of bulls and goats don't take away sins, right? So Hebrews 10 says this. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So God wants our hearts and wills and obedience, not merely our sacrifice, right? To obey is better than sacrifice. Don't just go through the motions if your heart's not there. I want your heart. But we've all fallen short of this, and even David did as well. And the sacrifices of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So God sent his son, his very heart, and Jesus willingly, I have come. I've come to do your will. And he did God's will. He accomplished it. It is finished. He became the sacrifice we all needed. He's the perfect king who obediently lived and died in our place for our sins once for all. And he established this new covenant. So the new covenant is established by this wholehearted sacrifice of Christ once for all, and that's what empowers and enables our wholehearted commitment to him. Okay, he gave us his very heart, which enables us to be changed from the inside out so that we want to give our whole heart, our whole life to the Lord. In a sense, these verses, chapter six and following, a New Testament way of saying that is, In view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. All of who you are is his. So David was delivered, he praised the Lord, and then he gave himself wholeheartedly to God. We 
If we've been delivered, we thank him, we praise him, and we give ourselves wholeheartedly to him because he first gave himself wholeheartedly for us. So, David waited, God delivered. But the fact that he or we have experienced deliverance in the past doesn't mean that we'll never be in the pit again. In need of new deliverance. So the latter half of the psalm actually makes clear that David is in trouble. The first half of the psalm is giving thanks for rescue. The second half of the psalm is help do it again. Okay? So point number four, as for you, look at verse 11. As for you, O Yahweh, in these last three points, well, at least two of them are going to go faster. So as for you, O Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me. You see the confidence? He's in trouble. He needs deliverance again. But he's confident that Yahweh will not restrain his mercy from him. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. So here he is, stuck again, desperate. My iniquities have overtaken me. I can't see. I'm just totally disoriented because of my sin. And then there's these external threats. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So internal sin, external threats. He's overwhelmed again, but he knows his God. As for you, O Yahweh, you won't restrain your mercy or your steadfast love or your faithfulness. So he cries out for deliverance yet again. Verse 13, be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, we've got you. <laughs> and just like in verses one to five, David isn't just thinking of himself. He's also thinking of those who will be encouraged when God delivers, intervenes, and delivers him again. Look at verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is Yahweh. In other words, do it again so that we can once again celebrate your deliverance and praise you for your greatness. So as for you, David knows his God and he rehearses God's character and his faithfulness. Point number five, as for me, do you see that contrast? Verse 17. As for you, verse 11, you won't restrain your mercy, your love, your faithfulness. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. It might actually be helpful and instructive to note his focus on himself is only a few words. Isn't it easy in the midst of suffering and affliction? We're down in the pit. Woe is me. We think of ourselves a ton and very little of God. But David does the opposite. I'm poor and needy. You are all of these things. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but you, you take thought for me. Remember back up in verse five? You've multiplied your thoughts toward us. The Lord takes thought for me. I'm not far from his mind. I'm in his mind. He knows what I'm going through. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So finally, last point, 
please do not delay. It started, this psalm started with, I waited patiently or I waited intently for Yahweh. And now he says, do not delay. He's basically saying, hurry up. So does the psalm start with patience and end with impatience? No. This is what waiting intently sounds like. I'm not running anywhere else. I am running to my only hope, and I'm saying, please show up soon. (laughs) Waiting intently actually says things like this. Hurry up. I need you. So those are not in contradiction. They're actually complementary. He's refusing to go elsewhere. He's also refusing to get cynical about God's goodness or willingness to rescue as he waits. This is waiting that's intently focused on God delivering him. And yes, the sooner the better. So God's character and his past deliverances strengthen David in the present and serve his faith to hang in there until God shows up. So, let's step back now for a minute, a few minutes, and consider this spiritual discipline of waiting on the Lord. What does it mean? Do we know what it means to wait on Yahweh? I want you, like, if this is, like, really, really important as far as the practicality of this. So, so think with me. This is application right here that's so important. Waiting on the Lord is what you do when, and I'm going to mention several categories here, okay? It's what you do when there's a gap between what you know in your head and what you believe or kind of like really know in your heart. You know something's true, but your heart's not there. What do you do? You wait on the Lord. You might do some other things, which is part of what it means to wait on the Lord, but we'll talk about that in a second. Or how about this? When there's a gap between God's promise and its fulfillment. So you know God has promised something, and you even believe it, but you haven't yet experienced its fulfillment. So obviously we live all of life that way when we think about the hope of the resurrection, you know? Like that's not going to be realized until Jesus comes back. But also there's promises like the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Okay, I know that's true but I'm struggling and I'm feeling like I'm lacking things. So there's a gap between his promise and my experience of that promise true in my life. Do you see? So you don't run Elsewhere, you, it's kind of like, you know, Jacob, cling to the Lord until he blesses you. So, again, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? There's a gap between God's promise and its fulfillment. Or, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, that has ultimate fulfillment at the end, right? But there's also comfort that comes in this life, but it doesn't always come right away. So you're waiting on the Lord. Or how about when you desire a good thing and God hasn't provided it? What do you do? 
wait on the Lord. Or when you desire God's gracious intervention and change in someone you love and he hasn't done it, what do you do? Wait on the Lord. That could be a child or a friend or a coworker or whatever. Or how about this? When you're not sure what's next and God hasn't made his will clear to you, like relation to major decisions, school or job or, you know, whether you should move or whatever, what do you do? Wait on the Lord. Or how about when you're tempted and in the heat of temptation, you don't give in, but you resist you wait on the Lord. You're waiting on him to turn down the, the temperature of the temptation. Lord, deliver me from evil. So that shows you how often we need to do this, just to think through those different categories, right? But it still doesn't, what do I do when I'm doing this? What does it mean to actually wait on the Lord? It is not passively sitting on your hands when faithfulness to God requires action or obedience. It's not doing nothing because you bear no responsibility. It's not that. It's also not this kind of stoic, like, how you doing? I'm fine. Like faking it. It's not just a stiff, stiff, (laughs) yeah, easy for me to say, stiff upper lip. You know, that can ultimately be your own strength and will or even anger. Anger can be a strong motivator. It's the fight of faith, actively relying on, trusting the character of God, waiting for him to deliver, not running to other refuges and strength and help like Asa did to Syria. In the Bible, waiting and trusting are oftentimes parallel. It is in Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is a man who makes Yahweh his trust. Waiting and hoping are oftentimes parallel. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Sometimes that's translated hope because there's overlap with those ideas. Waiting and seeking are oftentimes put together. Lamentations 3, those who wait on the Lord are those who seek the Lord. See how active it is? And also waiting and obeying are not two separate things, but when faithfulness to God, even if you're not feeling like it, Sometimes waiting looks like doing what God calls you to do and waiting for your heart to catch up. That's not faking it till till you make it. It's fighting unbelief for the sake of faithfulness. So waiting on the Lord is hoping. It's active. It's seeking him. It's trusting in him. It's being fiercely faithful until he acts. Because he's got purposes for the delays to burn away the chaff in us. To teach us patience and trust. So maybe you're, um, you're probably familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. One of his purposes in leaving us sometimes in the miry bog for a little while before he delivers us. It makes us weak, but as we lean in on him, it's the foundry where our strength is forged. 
So she writes things like this, which get at God's purposes in these times. She's been a quadriplegic for over 50 years, so lots of suffering, lots of waiting, lots of desperation, and she writes, the weaker we feel, the harder we lean on God, and the harder we lean, the stronger we grow. She writes, suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. And then she writes, my wheelchair was the key to seeing all this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. So sometimes we wait on the Lord and he delivers us in a way that we didn't want, but is what we really needed. She needed delivered from her selfishness even though her circumstances hadn't changed. So God has purposes. He's good. Wait on Yahweh. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't give in. He will come and deliver us. Isaiah 64, 4. And then we're gonna pray here and sing a final song. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God like you who acts, who works for those who wait for him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. You do good. And even when we don't understand the delays It is for our good. Help us to trust you in that. Teach us to wait. Help us to hear and receive and internalize the truth of Psalm 40. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. In Jesus' name, amen. 